This week, a checkup on the class action for Halibut applicants and upping the ante in the Mi'kmaq fight for fishing rights. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 153, and a thank you to listeners like Susanna Ezekiel. You can support us via patreon.com forward slash Matters and via email transfer to mi'kma.matters at gmail.com. We'll Later in the program, we'll be speaking with David Rosenfeld, lawyer in the class action brought by the late Jerry Brake. Letters to class members are going out and... Some people have been wondering if they can be involved in one of the other legal efforts and the class action at the same time. We'll ask David Rosenfeld. But first, the fight for Mi'kmaq fishing rights. Twenty years of waiting gave way to resistance as Mi'kmaq fishers in Nova Scotia took to the waters in their own moderate livelihood fishery. Next to India Brunswick, Mi'kmaq in Listigouche have also dropped their traps in a fall lobster fishery. But they run into one of the same problems as Nova Scotia fishers. They can't sell their catch because buyers have been warned by DFO they'll be fined if they deal with the Mi'kmaq fishers. For Gary Metallic Sr. of Listigouche, it sounds all too familiar. He was front and center of the Salmon Wars in Listigouche in 1981. Eventually, the community gained control over its salmon fishery, which it has managed ever since. But he says DFO had to be pushed every step of the way, and he sees the same delay tactics now. Gary Metallic Sr. is part of the traditional leadership in Listigouche, and until recently was part of the elected band council. He says the battles over lobster, salmon, and other resources will repeat themselves, and Mi'kmaq have to take things to the next level, take the same step as Mi'kmaq and Elsibukduk First Nation, assert Aboriginal title. Elsa Booktug has asserted Aboriginal title over a third of New Brunswick. Gary Metallic Sr. says it's time for Mi'kmaq to claim the rest of Mi'kmaqi. Here's my conversation with Gary Metallic Sr. on the present lobster fishery, the past battles, and future strategy. Yeah, there's been a fall fishery, communal uh, fall fishery since uh, after Marshall. And uh, I think that was uh, because of the interim... Uh, BFO agreements that were signed right after the Marshall ruling, but uh, yeah, we've uh, you know we, we've been having those fisheries without any any problems. But uh, I think in the last few years, uh, the fishers, the lobster fishermen, have been saying, "Why can't we sell our uh, you know our uh, lobster catch?" Since Supreme Court ruling in Marshall said we you know, we have the right to uh, earn that moderate uh, living. But DFO, of course, uh, won't allow it. The uh, first thing they they do is not, uh, I can't say it's confrontational. Then what they do is uh, just warn the buyers that if you're going to buy from uh, our fishers, lobster fishers here, they're uh, they're going to be fined. So that that closes that door. Yes. And would there be enough? Uh, so I I see uh, in the reports that there are about 235 traps. Uh, uh, that people in Listigouche set at this time of year for the for the fall fishing would that would that be enough uh, 
for the commercial buyers to be interested in? Is that enough for them to get lobster for the supermarkets in New Brunswick and Quebec? Well, I don't know about the bigger uh, markets, but uh, you know, there's always uh, smaller uh, smaller markets where buyers uh, will buy mm-hmm. will buy that allocation, yeah. no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but now now that I don't know what's going to happen. Like in the last couple of years, and I think last uh, last season and this year, they had a uh, they had a protest uh, fishing uh, lobster fishing where they extended. They're harvesting past beyond the, uh, you know, the uh, set date by DFO. Mm-hmm. And right now they're fishing now, and there's lobsters being uh, distributed to the people, elders, whatever. And uh, I, have, I haven't really heard about what they're going to do close to the deadline. And what about uh, in your area, in the Lustigush area? Are you getting the same kind of... Uh Backlash from the from the non-indigenous uh, fishers, uh, the harassment and uh, no, 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 we're not uh, getting any backlash. Uh, in the beginning, we did uh, when we first started uh, fishing lobster, 19, 1995. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in charge of fisheries then. I was a member of the Lisuas Bad Council, and uh, they tried to do the same thing. We uh, we have a uh, Warfare, government wharf about maybe 20 minutes from our uh, community where we uh, had to, uh, you know, dock. And that was the first time ever that list would ever set traps. We hired a boat from Elsimukto uh, and traps. But anyway, long story short, uh, they tried to prevent them from uh, coming back and landing uh, with, with the catch. And I got the phone call. So we had, we had uh, our people here, warriors and uh, you know, women and, uh, go over there about three van loads. And, uh, we, you know, we got there and got off. So I said, uh, I heard you threatening to, you know, threatening that you're, you're, if our, if our boats and uh, the crew land here, you know, you're going to, uh, you were going to, uh, either harass them or uh, whatever. I said, well, we're going to settle it right here and now. And that was the last time that, uh, you know, that they ever, Try to uh, harass or uh, uh, damage our crops or take our crops. Mm-hmm. You know, as we told them, if you do that, if you damage or harass our, our people, we won't do the same thing. We're not going to just stand there and watch you do it. That's how we are here in Westwoods. Uh, you know, so we don't have that problem. Uh, what they're having in, uh, in Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. but of course over there. Uh, I think the industry is larger than what we have here in the Bay, you know, like the fishing fleets and uh, so forth. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, Acadian, Acadian and English uh, lobster fishermen. Now, in Lustigouche, of course, uh, you have uh, a lot of experience in managing your fisheries. Of course, we know about the uh, about the, the salmon wars, and you you fought and and won your right to manage the your salmon fishery, and um, and you run that. You you regulate it uh, with your own people. You've done a very good job. So it would, DFO doesn't seem to, uh, they don't seem to give you any credit for the uh, achievements uh, in managing the salmon fishery. It's hard, to, it's hard not to be cynical. You know, there are more, um, you know, I guess maybe the uh, the government sees uh, there are more, there are more votes uh, 
among the non-natives than among the natives. So, uh, you know, if you're a politician, I guess you're getting re-elected. So uh, you don't want to antagonize these very powerful uh, interests in, in Nova Scotia uh, or yeah. in Brunswick. They have more. They have more of a leverage than we do. Like like you just said, uh, you know, some of our people do vote, but uh, the bottom line is there's more more of them uh, that vote. So, Gary, where do you see this thing uh, going on Lustigers then? Uh, people, uh, you know, they're seeing what's going on in Nova Scotia. They have their, their traps and they want to fish the fall fishery, but they can't sell. So um, is it, um, you know, are is Lustigers going to wait and see what happens in Nova Scotia, or do you have your own plan for your fishery in your area? Well, I think they have a plan. I'm not, I'm not party to... Uh... You know what's happening uh, within the Bat Council system. I've been out of it for uh, well, the last I think the last time I attended a meeting was uh, March 26th, 2019. Mm-hmm. You no, know, for several reasons, uh, I had health conditions that uh, I because uh, I, I was a member of the which Bat Council, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> due to health reasons, I had a heart attack back in. 18. So I'm not really privy to what uh, their next uh, move is. I would think they're going to have, they're waiting for what happens in Nova Scotia, but even with uh, what's happening in Nova Scotia, and I said it before, right throughout the districts, it's going to be a band-aid solution. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't uh, file these uh, Aboriginal statement uh, claims in the courts, to to have the answer of who really owns uh, title to the, not only the lands but and these natural resources, you're still going to have you're still going to have these provincial and federal governments trying to limit us as indigenous people, you know, on what we can do, how much we can take, how much we can uh, harvest, you know, with, with our with our rights, and never and they won't want to deal with the real, as I said, conversations that needs to be had about the land itself. Who gets the benefit from it and, and gets to decide how it's used and the harder that conversation is creating space for the exercise of a business decision making and loss, you know? Until until such time that uh, that kind of pressure is put on these governments. It's just going to be, and I've seen it happen year after year after year. There's a confrontation about logging, about this and that. Then uh, they'll throw a piece of steak out and, uh, you know, everything stops. But then it, it, it happens again. It, and it's been growing like that for uh, centuries. That they don't want to respect what, uh, you know, what, what the British government signed, uh, the British uh, Empire signed, signed with their uh, ancestors, and that's the Peace and Fish of Trees, also affirmed by the 1763 Royal Proclamation, also affirmed by the 1982 Constitution Act. So they don't, they don't want to talk about that. You never hear them mention that. You know, it's like they're, they're pretending that they're the title holders. And that we do not have title when, in fact, we still have uh, uh, titles over our uh, homelands, mm-hmm. and 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 that's been affirmed, like I said, by 1763 and the treaties and whatever. And those are lost; they're still lost. Yeah, we didn't give up those. They uh, we didn't. Oh, there's not there's nothing that says we ever gave up mm-hmm. our uh, our right to uh, to govern ourselves and to manage. Uh, 
our uh, natural resources. So you're you're proposing a, um, uh, a, a, a filing a claim for Aboriginal title over all of Mi'kmaq from uh, Quebec uh, down through New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Yes, for sure. I mean that's what I, I'm proposing uh, right now, as of uh, a week ago, to uh, the band council over here in Listowitz. Uh, we have to do this. Uh, this is the only way that we're going to get their attention. When we do that, uh, we then run a, uh, an even level playing field with federal and provincial governments. Because Aboriginal title, as you know, in 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada, in its, in its history, first time in history, validated that, uh, yes, uh, no, nations can claim Aboriginal title if they can prove that they occupied their ancestral territories, you know, since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And we can, as the seven districts, you know, in, in the eastern maritime provinces, prove that. Mm-hmm. But we we just haven't uh, uh, gone forward in doing so. Sibuktu is, is the first district that's, uh, that did that about two years ago, three years ago. And I think uh, it's critical that maybe all the uh, districts do the same thing. Gary Metallic Sr., speaking from Mystikush, Mi'kmaq First Nation. This past week marked the ninth anniversary of the founding of Halibu First Nation, but thousands of people are still trying to get status in the band. There are three court cases out there, one of them is a class action, and the rules for that kind of case say that if you're a Halibu applicant, you're in the class action unless you take yourself out. That was one of the pieces of information in a bulletin now being sent out by lawyers for the class action. That led people to ask, do I have to choose between supporting the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland or Friends of Alibu or the class action? We took that question to David Rosenfeld of the law firm Koske Minsky. I asked him about the case, the progress, and who's in and who's out. Uh, sure, and this class action initially started by the late uh, Jerry Brake. Um seeks to challenge the, the existence of a supplemental agreement uh, on the basis that was uh, that it was put in place through uh, improper purposes um, and by the federal government. Um, and in, in particular, they, they uh, were concerned about numbers, not about substance. And that's why they put in place or agreed to put in place uh, the supplemental agreement, which then, as everybody knows, uh, vastly, reduced the number of people who would be entitled to be uh, members in the band. Um, and uh, it's on the basis of um, administrative law uh, remedies, uh, violations of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and, and um, something called unjust enrichment. Ultimately, it, it's it's a claim against uh, the federal government, um, although the Federation of Newfoundland Indians is also involved because it uh, involves the propriety of the supplemental agreement. The claim is, is asking for the supplemental agreement to be set aside, for people to be assessed pursuant to the original agreement, which 
um, the parties were clearly able to implement um, and assess people on, and damages for people who have would ultimately then um, get status in the band and all the corollary uh, benefits that are associated with that from the time in which they were initially denied until the time that they were eventually accepted pursuant to this class proceeding. Um, that is different than a whole host of the other cases that might exist. I know that there were two um, judicial review proceedings that seem to be, um, uh, um, I guess, in an agreement with the federal government and the FNI on on how to proceed with the issues. The class proceeding, Mr. Brake, Mr. Collins, uh, did not agree and, and were not part of the agreement. In any event, um, there was the Wells case, which in, in our perspective was a loss for the class, and it maintained uh, the, the unfair distinctions uh, within it uh, related to self-identification. Um, and the, the evidence required um, to prove that. Um, so, uh, I mean, ultimately, our view is that there wasn't sufficient evidence, particularly in terms of uh, improper purposes that, that resulted in those, that decision. Um, then there's Abbott, which was just wholly unsuccessful, and I, I, my understanding is there's appeal. Um, I don't know what the state of affairs of that appeal is, and that's related to the community acceptance components. The class proceeding is dealing with, with both at once, and it is going to raise the issues um, we believe are necessary to raise to um, um, address what we consider to be the unfairness of the supplemental agreement. We understand that there's a case in in Newfoundland, I believe it's entitled Benoit, and that is um, primarily against the, the Federation of Newfoundland Indians um, in relation to corporate law issues around uh, the membership, uh, what happened to the membership um, once the band, uh, the Halifax band, was initially uh, created. It's seeking, I guess, to set aside um, the supplemental agreement on on the basis that the FNI didn't have authority to to enter into it, uh, it, it asks for, uh, I guess, more remedies in terms of um, seeking to have others, other than the named individuals, um, um, have their claims assessed under the original agreement. Although I don't, I don't believe the court has the jurisdiction to, to do that. But in any event, uh, from our perspective, the class proceeding is the only case that will have the legal authority. Um, to apply any remedies or common questions of fact or law um, to all class members and force the federal government and the FNI to to comply. And where is the uh, where is the class action now? People have been getting uh, letters, notification letters, as per class action the class action process, updating people. And of course, uh, uh, COVID has uh, changed uh, uh, lots of uh, schedules, including court schedules. So, where are you in the process of the class action? Yeah, so there's two stages that are that are running in parallel uh, at this point. One is notice to the class, which is you know letting all the class members, those people who were rejected um, pursuant to the supplemental agreement, know that there's a class proceeding, know what it's about, and um, tell them that if they if they want to uh, uh, you know effectively start their own claim uh, and not be bound by the class proceeding, they can take a step to remove themselves. Otherwise, they're automatically Including, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. And then the second component is just the regular litigation, which is 
um, exchanging the documents and and having the necessary examinations for discovery where, where one party asks questions of representatives of the other party to get the necessary evidence to then go to trial. Um, back to notice, which I, which I imagine I'm going to preempt questions uh, that you might have, um, in terms of uh, opt-out um, issues, um, the, the notice stage um, sort of sets who is in the class and who is not. Uh, the federal court provides a uh, what, what's called an opt-out jurisdiction, which means that uh, everybody who's identified in the class definition, again, being those people who are rejected pursuant to the supplemental agreement, uh, are automatically included in the class proceeding unless they take a step um, to remove themselves from the class proceeding and called opting out. And if they opt out, um, they wouldn't be entitled to whatever remedies are, are, are ordered through the class proceeding specifically. Um, and um, I mean, they, there may be orders or remedies ordered in, in other cases that may or may not apply to them or, or um, be implemented uh, in relation to them, but pursuant to the class proceeding, um, they wouldn't, you know, if the class proceeding ordered X, Y, and Z, the class members wouldn't specifically be entitled to it and wouldn't be entitled to enforce it through the class proceeding. And in particular, the damages. There doesn't appear to be any other um, proceeding that, that seeks some sort of compensation for what I think to be a, a, a severe violation of, of rights and, and dignity. Um, so, uh, I mean, ultimately the question that, that people or class members would have is whether um, they, they want to seek to get um, some benefit from this class proceeding or they want to try to do it themselves. And, and ultimately, um, 99.99% of all the people who are rejected pursuant to a supplemental agreement have not yet started their own um, proceeding to try and challenge their rejection from um, the application process. Um, and they would, I would imagine, face significant hurdles in terms of timeliness if they wanted to start their own proceeding now. Um, uh, and how about, uh, and I think this was the question that Dave Wells uh, is uh, trying to get an answer to from um, the uh, Mifnam lawyer uh, Jamie Lickers, uh, if you if you are merely a contributor to uh, the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly, or if you're a contributor to Friends of Halibu, if you pay them uh, you know twenty five dollars a year or some donation, that would not uh, disqualify you from being a member of the class. It would only be the only people who would be uh, disqualified would be people who are named parties in one of these. Um, matters. Uh, if you're if you're Abbott in the Abbott case or uh, maybe Benoit the Benoit case, but uh, not if you're just a, a contributor to the cause. Yeah, and, and let me be clear, I, I don't have any communication with Mr. Wells or the MFNAN, so uh, I don't know what questions they've asked to, to whom. Um, but ultimately, uh, people who support the MFNAN, um, which in turn may support litigation, um, or if people support um, other litigation in, in some fashion, sign up with, with some organization or whatnot, none of that automatically disentitles them to be class members in the proceeding, um, in, in the class action. So, um, period. Um, the, the, the people who, who have, have put their name on and have commenced proceedings in, in court uh, may have to make a decision on whether to continue that proceeding 
or stay in the class we're sitting. It's a, it's a far more complicated question, but ultimately for the, again, the 99.99% of all class members who may or may not have, you know, provided some support both morally or, or actually monetarily to any other claim or organization that does not automatically disqualify them from being a class member in this class proceeding. Right. Well, that's good. People will find uh, some uh, reassurance in that. And let me finally ask you, um, when uh, do you have a sense of when the trial might be? You, uh, you mentioned you're on a two-track process, two litigation. So um, when do you think you'll be uh, in a courtroom, perhaps wearing a mask, uh, talking to a judge uh, on this matter? Yeah, I, I don't know if you heard me chuckle there when you when you raised that, um, but uh, I, I I honestly don't know, um, and and it's not because I can't predict um, regular litigation. It's it's for the last six months we appear to have been stymied uh, by the federal government uh, in trying to get uh, documents, uh, the evidence. In this case, so COVID and is, COVID is not the delay them, but the the federal government is not uh, not producing. Oh no, the, the, it's related. I mean, they're they're suggesting that that COVID is the reason why um, they can't do whatever it is they they need to do. Um, we've gone. We're now six months into into COVID. Um, we're now almost a year since this case has been certified. Um, it, it, it's a, been a long time um, where the world has adapted. Um, to get on with um, their lives and other cases. And this case is, to me, no different. Um, and, look, we're trying to push as, as hard and fast as we possibly can to get those documents, but we are facing um, resistance um, with the reliance upon COVID impacts and access to uh, the Internet, uh, bandwidth, um, remote bandwidth um, issues and access to facilities. So um, we're doing our best with the court's assistance to to try to uh, marshal and and direct uh, these documents to be produced as fast as they possibly can. But until we get those, this case is sort of uh, in limbo. Um, So we're hoping to have... Is it from Canada or from the F&I or both that uh, you're seeking documents? I would say both, but it appears the FNI has has seemed to have uh, resolved um, whatever hurdles they had for COVID. They've appeared to have been able to um, at least um, get a process going and, and, and assess, you know, sort of a time frame for delivery of some documents. So um, it's it's an ongoing process, and and you know we're, we're we're trying to work with the parties, try to get a get a sense of what it is that's holding it up, try to assess whether whether it can be done in, in a faster fashion. But ultimately, from our perspective, it's been long enough um, in in having to adapt to, to COVID. The rest, the entire world has to move on, um, and, and so do these parties. David Rosenfeld of the law firm Kosky Minsky. Speaking of lawyers... Many listeners will know the name Jamie Lickers of the law firm Gowlings, who was the lawyer on the Wells and Abbott cases brought by the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. Jamie Lickers is leaving Gowlings and leaving litigation and is going to the corporate sector. And that's it for the program. 
before we go, we ask a small favor. If you listen to us via podcast, could you please like us on whatever platform you listen to us at? That will help us show up higher in the podcast listings and help us bring Mi'kmaq news to more people. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Namaltus. Mm-hmm.